Uh, Mitch, we are expecting the Prime Minister to uh, have some comments to reporters in the next hour, sometime uh, after 11 o'clock. He's at uh, the APEC Summit in San Francisco. A lot to ask the Prime Minister about. You know, the situation in the Middle East, some issues here at home, but also China. In fact, uh, from what we've been hearing, uh, it's been uh, pretty frosty between the leaders of Canada and China at this summit. Uh, as uh, this story notes, China and Canada routinely rub elbows when leaders gather for photos at the annual APEC gathering. But outside the family photo, officials took pains to point out the two leaders shared little on Thursday beyond a brief hello. Now, the U.S. president spent four hours with his Chinese counterpart on Wednesday. Uh, but it doesn't appear as though there was uh, any kind of conversation between Trudeau and Xi Jinping. In fact, it appears as though they really avoided each other for the most part at this summit. Uh, so that, I'm sure, will come up in the prime minister's press conference. You know, it was just over a couple of months ago that the federal government finally, after months of stonewalling and delay, announced a public inquiry into foreign interference and more specifically Chinese interference in Canadian elections uh, and in Canada more broadly. So we'll see where that all goes. But obviously the issue hasn't gone away. An interesting new paper from the McDonald Laurier Institute documents the pervasive and corrosive nature of Chinese operations in Canada. This paper attempts to better understand and explore what the goals of these influence operations really are. Well, joining us to talk more about it is uh, the author of this paper. Very pleased to welcome the program here this morning, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, non-resident senior fellow at the European Values Center for Security Policy and a former diplomat with the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Charles, always great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Great to speak with you, Rob. Uh, regarding, uh, you know, the, the APEX summit, I mean, maybe not a, a surprise that there wouldn't be, um, you know, a warm welcome from Xi Jinping for Justin Trudeau, but that they were avoiding each other, no conversations really happening. What, what do you read into that? Well, I think it's, you know, a function that Canada is really not a power that the world takes seriously these days, uh, particularly under Prime Minister Trudeau, who you know, is caught on Mike saying that we'll never achieve our 2% commitment to NATO. Mm -hmm. And then in the most recent budget, uh, we actually see some defense cuts. And, uh, and his emphasis on, you know, things like gender rights and environment, when the world is really worried about uh, whether we're heading into a situation where not only will we have an Iran-backed war in the Middle East and a Russia-backed uh, possible confrontation with NATO in Europe, and then maybe um, in you know something in the Indo-Pacific with China focused on the South China Sea and Taiwan, um, with Russia, China, and Iran you know evidently uh, inclining to coordinate to to disrupt the international rules-based order. I think our Prime Minister is just not taken seriously because uh, you know he. Uh, he tends to virtue signal, doesn't follow up, and uh, we are not prepared to make the commitment of hard power to properly collaborate with our like-minded allies like Australia, the United States, and Britain. And we're consistently excluded from those uh, alliances designed to constrain China. We're not in the Quad, we're not in the AUS UK, US, and we're not even in the... Um, in the uh, latest economic coalition that the United States has, has set up, the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, which has, uh, you know, 13 members of APEC in it, but not Canada. So, you know, no wonder if the Prime Minister gets blown off a bit. 
it's uh, I feel sort of uh, very ashamed as a Canadian that Canada is uh, being treated so dismissively by the rest of the world, and it really is our own fault. Yeah, it's unfortunate to see. I think you're right about that. Um, you know, d- despite that I- irrelevance, maybe that we've we've wrought for ourselves on the international stage. I mean, we still matter in in a different context to China. There's a reason why they've targeted so much attention. Why they've uh, you know have these influence operations in Canada. So aside from what they think of the government, why why does Canada matter strategically to China? Well, I think certainly, you know, Canada is the second largest landmass on the planet. We're located between the United States and Russia. And I think, uh, importantly, China is interested in the Arctic. They, China now refers to itself as a near-Arctic state, which right. doesn't actually make any rational sense nope. because they are nowhere near the Arctic. But anyway, they say that, and they want the Arctic Silk Road, um, the Polar Silk Road, as they refer to it to take advantage of global warming and get a bigger presence up in the north as a shipping route. And I think uh, China has a lot of interest in Canadian natural resources uh, as yet unexploited up in the north. So, you know, China would like to have more influence with Canada to reduce our alliance with the United States and is engaged in a series of, of operations designed to get the Canadian elite to at least turn a blind eye to China's activities in Canada. They have an enormous diplomatic cohort here compared to our population. And, uh, you know, their operations in terms of um, gaining dual-use military technologies from our universities and research institutes is operating very effectively because Canada just doesn't have the legislation to, to put an end to it. You know, we just read, I think, last week that Huawei is still cooperating with a number of Canadian universities whereby the the high-tech results of the collaborative research all reverts to China patents and could be used for military purposes. So, I mean, Canada's been a very soft target, and uh, our government and our elite, not just the current government, but, you know, all of the Laurentian elite seems to be prepared to accept benefits from China in exchange for turning a blind eye to China to, to China's expansion in our country. And in ways which they're doing much more of than they're doing in other comparable liberal democracies. And has that slowed down at all? I mean, you know, obviously the the relationship with China has changed. We've got a government that previously embraced the idea of closer relations with China. That's not the case anymore. A lot of these uh, activities and influence operations have been brought to light. But is all of that enough to, to reduce or slow down any of that? Well, I think that, you know, certainly public opinion is very much uh, with the message that China poses a strategic threat to us. Our government, you know, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, defined China as an increasingly disruptive global power. That's rather weak language, but, you know, what I've heard from people in Ottawa is, oh, well, you know, disruptive is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, You know, the Internet was also disruptive when it came out. So it seems that while popular opinion and our security and intelligence and military get the message, the government is still reluctant to take action that would make China feel um, uh, that their position in Canada is being affected. We haven't implemented, for example, foreign influence transparency legislation that would require people who have influence in the policy process to disclose if they're receiving benefits from a foreign power. Um, we haven't engaged in any uh, meaningful activities to constrain the harassment and interference of the Chinese um, agents in Canada with parliamentarians and members of the uh, 
Chinese diaspora, Uyghurs and Tibetans, you know, we just, we haven't engaged in, as I said, the legislation to try and prevent the transfer of classified technologies to agents of the Chinese state. And of course, we haven't increased our defense spending so that we can be out there with our allies in in force, you know, commensurate with our size and power to try and um, maintain the integrity of the international rules-based order. So, you know, rhetoric is one thing, but um, action is something else. And we seem to be uh, increasingly strong on the rhetoric where the government tries to appease public opinion by making commitments, but we don't actually see the the beef of it in terms of um, effective measures to try and turn the situation around. Now, there are countries that are more serious about these issues, you know, United States, Australia, for example, but they're, they're still subject to these kinds of influence operations as well. So, you know, even being more serious about it doesn't make us necessarily immune, but what can we learn from, you know, what they've done in the U.S. or what they've done in Australia? Like, have, have, do, is, are there achievements that, that those countries can point to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you talk about Australia and New Zealand, they have a much higher dependence on the Chinese economy Mm -hmm. and therefore potentially greater um, ability for China to engage in economic coercion than we do. I mean, Australia and New Zealand are sending about 30% of their external commodity trade to China. We're at about 4% because, you know, most of our trade goes to the United States. Um, uh, Australia has implemented... uh, Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, and you saw a number of influential Australians resign from China-related law firm consultancies and board memberships just before the act came into effect, requiring them to declare that publicly. So, I mean, we could be cutting and pasting that legislation and enacting it in Canada in a hurry. And originally, I think we were given the impression by the government that they would be doing that this fall, but it then didn't appear on the legislative agenda when Parliament came back, we could be doing much more to investigate and expel agents of the Chinese state who are involved in, you know, the kind of influence operations that we've seen revealed in Global News and the Globe and Mail that have, um, you know, really vindicated people like me who've been talking about things, but largely, you know, circumstantial and and anecdotal. This stuff, this release of the CSIS um, wiretaps and and uh, and so on uh, really makes it clear that this is going on in Canada. It's a serious problem, and we need to respond to it. I think we should be declaring a lot more Chinese diplomats persona non grata and making clear to the Chinese regime that Canada is not going to just stand idly by while the Chinese government's engaged in activities which are violations of international law and threaten Canadian security and sovereignty. Yeah, no kidding. And like, I mean, I mentioned the public inquiry, and I think it's, you know, that, that's a positive that, that we're finally getting that, and we'll, we'll see where that all goes. But is it your concern that in the meantime, everything else is just going to be put on hold, that we won't do any of these other things because we're just waiting for this public inquiry to run its course? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we need that Foreign uh, Influence Transparency Act right away. I mean, it you know, all it requires is that people who are receiving benefits from a foreign power should put it on the record so that we know. I mean, we heard in the election campaign for the conservative leadership that uh, Jean Charest, who, you know, had been quite active in in encouraging the government to release the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou before we were finished with the um, review of the U.S. extradition request, was in fact receiving a retainer from the Huawei company. I mean, you know, nothing illegal there, but 
maybe if the public had been aware that Mr. Charest was was receiving money from that source, it might have given us a different take on on his um, <laughs> views, publicly expressed views on Huawei. So that's all we need to do. But it, I think the problem is that there are so many uh, senior civil servants and former cabinet ministers and members of parliament from both parties, not just the one, who are in fact uh, receiving benefits from a foreign state which could be construed as some sort of reward for taking it easy on China while they were in a position of public trust, that our government is very reluctant to open up this this uh, can of worms and, and let it out. But we need to do that. The Canadian people just want to know, and we want to put a stop to, to people who feel if they, if they play nice with China while they're in government, they will be able to make what my colleague Charlie Parton over in Britain refers to as life-transforming amounts of money from the Chinese regime when they're when they're no longer in public in public positions. You know, yeah. it just it, it just strikes me as a no-brainer. I really don't see why we would couldn't do that now. Why do we have to wait for the results of a public inquiry that may not be able to tell us very much if it goes the way that the special rapporteur goes, which is they say, well, we can't give you too many details because all of this is classified. Exactly. Well, your latest, as mentioned, is up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Charles, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here today.